Thank you, Lee. Thank you for praying for us, and, and more than that, for leading us in how to pray through the Scriptures. That was, uh, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll imitate that in your own prayer life. That was a great, uh, great example and a great uh, experience as we bring the very words of God back to Him in prayer and supplication. Well, we're almost done with the book of Galatians. We're in the last paragraph, so if you'll follow me, this is the Apostles Paul's drop-the-mic moment, okay? Uh, see what large letters, or maybe it's his steal-the-mic moment. This, I, get, I think this actually reminds me more of Kanye West stealing the mic from uh, Taylor Swift, okay, at the Music Awards back in, what, 2000, I mean, it was 13, maybe 9, 10, I don't remember, something like that. But, you know, he steals the mic from her and he gives his speech. Um, Paul has someone writing for him, and, and he steals the pen, okay? See what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. So I'm done dictating this. I'm gonna have, I, I want to sign off here. I want to give my final appeal. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Let me see if I can get us through this paragraph with this lesson. The performance culture of the world holds no power over those who are rescued by the grace of God in Jesus Christ. The performance culture that we live in, and we live in one, uh, every culture separate from Jesus is based on performance. The sad thing is often the culture that associates with Jesus, the church, the very people of God, often create a culture of performance. But the performance culture really holds no power over us who live by the grace of God. Let's see if we can bring this out from the text. I'm, I've broken it into three questions. First, what motivates these gospel distorters? You remember from chapter 1, if you have your Bibles and want to turn over there, verse 6, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. It's not like there's multiple gospels. There's one gospel, but there are some who trouble and want to distort it. So there were people who were distorting the gospel to the churches in Galatia. And Paul is answering this question, what motivates them? Now, I know, I know, I know, we're not supposed to judge motives. We're not supposed to say, this is your motive when someone does something. Well, when the apostles do it under inspiration, it's because they know what the motive is. It's because the Holy Spirit has actually revealed the motives. Okay? 
I think that's an important point to make because we're so quick to, to jump down this non-judgmental when God says of false teachers that their God, the deity that they worship, is actually their desires. I mean, Paul says that flat out. We shouldn't, we shouldn't shrink away from that. Oh, they have good motives. If they're not teaching the gospel, no, they don't. And so Paul lists very specific motives that are behind this distortion of the gospel. This specific one. We can assume there are other motives for other distortions. What are those motives? Well, he gives us three at least. The first one is kind of showcasing their performance. Look how he says it. Uh, It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh. A good showing is a good presentation. Look at how I've done. Look at how I'm doing. We, we often do this through our children. Our children become our good showing. You can tell that good parenting has produced and good parenting only comes from good parents, godly parents. So look at my children as the evidence of my good showing, my good performance. We do this often through our careers, through our clothes, through our cars, through our material possessions. We put on a good showing. We make a good profession of who we are. I sit down with people often, and, and uh, in, in the conversations, they tell me what kind of people they are. And what I hear is not what kind of people they are, but what kind of the people they want me to think of them as. I'm really a disciplined person. I'm a, I'm a say-it-like-it-is person. Well, okay, that's how you want me to think of you at least, whether you're really a say-it-like-it-is person or whether there's something else motivating that. We put on a good showing. Um, this is how the world functions. This is the world that you operate. You understand this because tomorrow morning you're going to go to a place where you've got to put on a good showing. You've got to have good performance, and you're going to get performance reviews. This is how the world functions. It functions this way in our families, which is devastating to family life. It functions this way in our church, which is devastating to community. Paul has been bringing these things out. But this is, their first, this is the first motive. Just want to make a good showing. Just want to present myself as self-righteous. Look what I've done. The second one. Avoiding persecution. This is the self-protection. If, if we abandon the performance culture, what happens? Well, those who are in that performance culture, those who are on that treadmill, kind of look over at you like, hey, hey, what, what are you doing? That's not how we function here. Don't you know the rules? Don't you know the rules of life? Don't you know the rules of of we're trying to outperform each other, we're trying to, I'm comparing myself to you, and you're comparing, and you're not playing. What's wrong? Well, in their day, it was the Jewish people who had come to faith, who were trying to kind of bridge the gap, trying to kind of have a compromise between Christianity and their traditional, uh, their, their Jewish tradition. They didn't want the Jewish culture that they were very much enmeshed in. In fact, these were people who came from Jerusalem and they sat down with Peter and Peter immediately identified with them, didn't want to be persecuted by them for having dinner with Gentiles. And so he withdraws. You can see this cultural pressure and you know, if, if, if I don't give in to this pressure, if I don't participate with it and play along, 
they're going to start to, to persecute me. Um, so there's this avoidance of persecution. There's this self-protection. And that's why the gospel is so offensive. is because it, it exposes me to weakness. It exposes me to my own brokenness. And it exposes me to persecution, to being excluded from community, to being excluded from the, the neighborhood HOA because I'm, I'm, not, you know, I, I'm not trying to compete in the lawn contest because you know, my lawn's not where my investment is. It's grass. <laughs> you know, my investment is going into eternal things, not temporal things. It's these kind of situations that, that you know, we wrestle with on a daily basis. But he tells us that's, what, that's the motive. They're trying to avoid being out of step with culture, being out of step with the world. And then finally, they're building their own kingdom. And Jesus confronts the Pharisees with this. He says, you'll go over mountain, you'll, go to, you'll, you'll travel to other states, to other countries, you'll do whatever, you'll spend thousands of dollars to make one convert. And then you're going to burden them with the law again. You're going to put the law of God on them and make them twice the converts of hell. Um, this is, you know, this is them wanting to boast in how many converts they have. Look, look what he says. Um, verse, uh, verse 14. No, I'm sorry, I missed that one. Uh, verse 15. Uh, verse 13, I'm sorry. But they desire, to have, that they, uh, they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Um, that's Paul's way of saying that they can go back and report good numbers to Jerusalem. And go back and report to, to the home office. We have 1,500 converts to our, to our religion, to our traditions. Um, I, I think that's... I, I, I don't know how we can deny that that's affected the church. Right? I don't know how we can say, well, sometimes that's our motive. It's just to post points on the board. And somehow in our, in our Christian culture, if we haven't posted some points on the board recently, something, you know, something's wrong. And so we, we start to pressure and manipulate and control people to try and post, um, you know, to, to get some, some scores on the board there. Um, this is that, you know, what you boast in is what's motivating you. When people boast about something, you know that that's what they're worshiping, that's what they're idolizing, that's what they're cherishing, that's what they believe is going to shape who they are and uh, how they're viewed. Um, And so these three motives are very much, Paul says, this is what they're doing. They don't care about you. They don't care about you. They just want to avoid persecution themselves. They don't want to come under any any, uh, hardships from the community. They want to post some good numbers, and you're, you're just a number to them. And they want to make a good showing of themselves. The, I tried to put a self behind each one of these because that's what's behind it. It's self. It's look at me, look at how I've managed my life, look at, how, look at the points I've put on the board, whether it's in how many converts I have or, or how much money I have in the bank or how successful I've become or how my kids have turned out or what kind of health I'm in. Um, let me put some points on the board so that, I can, uh, so that I can feel good about me and so that I can impress you 
with me. I can impress God with me. So this is what Paul says motivates these distorters. But what motivates the believer? What motivates the person who's living by the grace of God? What motivates a person who is living as a sinner saved by grace? Well, the first thing is it is not their performance. It is not their performance. And and Paul highlights this. Look what he says. Verse 13, For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law. This is what a believer understands. This is what I hope you understand is that there is none righteous, no, not one. That there is no one in this room who is clean, who is holy, who is righteous. There is no one in this room who has not fallen short of the glory of God. If that could become the rubric of our lives, if that could sink in, even to look at our righteousness, our good deeds, all the things that we're doing. And folks, it's amazing to hear. We had a, one, of our, one of our folks who had a, a medical condition recently, and I went over and visited and said, what do you need? And this is what they told me. This church has been amazing. My Bible study has rallied around me. The biggest thing I need is transportation. I've already had church members who have told me that they can drive me to places And I've already got meals on the way. Yesterday, we had someone who had an accident, uh, I guess Friday. And wow, the outpouring, the rallying of this congregation. These are good works. This is the congregation caring for each other and supporting each other and nurturing each other. Which, by the way, is so much better than what any one one pastor or one group of elders could do. It's so beautiful. These are good works, but they do not make us righteous. I, uh, I want to read this to you. I, I love the Westminster Confession of Faith. It is, it is a regular read for me. I would strongly encourage you to read it. Make it part of your devotional reading. Read it slowly and consider what it says. Here's what the Westminster Confession, what the divine said about our good works. We cannot, this is uh, chapter 16, Uh, Section 5, we cannot by our best works merit pardon of sin or eternal life at the hand of God. Okay, I get that. Uh, By reason of the great disproportion that is between them and the glory to come, the infinite distance that is between us and God, who by them we can neither profit nor satisfy for the debt of our former sins. But when we have done all we can, We have done but our duty and are still unprofitable servants. And because as they are good, they proceed from his spirit, our good deeds, they proceed from his spirit, they are wrought by us, Uh, they are defiled because they, they come from defiled people and mixed with so much weakness and imperfection that they cannot endure the severity of God's judgment. So even your good works, as Isaiah says, are filthy rags. If you were to present all your good works to God and he were to evaluate them, they would still fall short. Notwithstanding, here's the next section, notwithstanding the persons of believers being accepted through Christ. See, this is, our good works fall short. 
your righteousness falls short. But because you've been accepted by God through Jesus Christ, so your good works are also accepted in Christ. See, it's not your good work. It's the person that you're connected to. Not as though they were in this life wholly unblameable and unreprovable in God's sight, but that he, looking upon them in his son, is pleased to accept and reward that which is sincere, although accompanied with many weaknesses and imperfections. So if you start looking at your works and deeds, just remember they fall short. And then remember that they're accepted because they come into the presence of the Father before his throne through Jesus. And it is he who presents them in all his goodness and glory. And God is so gracious that he rewards us for them. Holy cow. Guys, that's grace. God turns around and says, I know, I know. It was my spirit that moved you to do that. That was of me. And I know, I know, your works fell far short. But because they came to me through Jesus, I accept them. I rejoice in them. And I'm going to reward you for it. What mercy is this? Folks, it is not our performance that God receives. Our performance is paltry. And it is riddled with imperfection. It is Christ that he receives. And because you are in, connected to, you joined with Jesus, he accepts you. He does not accept you as you are apart from Christ. It is all Christ who presents us to the Father. So it's not our performance, it's Christ. And it's not the culture. The culture should not motivate us. The culture should not be the thing that drives us, that, uh, that uh, motivates us. This is what Paul says when he says, uh, um, far be it, this is verse 14, but, be it, but far be it for me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Uh, now this is not Paul saying, I don't care what you think about me anymore. This is not Paul having some kind of weird reaction to the culture and standing up for himself and being a strong individual. This is Paul saying something actually has transpired. A transaction has occurred. As I was joined to Christ, his crucifixion has become mine. And now I am dead to the world and the world dead to me. And the power that the world has over me The power of the culture and the pressure of the culture is no longer there because all that matters is faith working itself through love. This is the freedom that Christ offers us in the gospel. It's the freedom to stand against that pressure knowing that I am fully accepted by God through Jesus Christ, knowing that all I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Didn't we just sing that? Hallelujah. 
All I have is Christ. And my friends, that is all we need. This is the example of our Savior as he is hanging on a cross. The writer of Hebrews says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. The shame that the culture brings upon a Christian who is living faithfully before his God, not self-righteously before the world, but just resting in the goodness and grace of God and and by his spirit living faithfully, repenting, confessing of sin, uh, living their lives sacrificially for God and others. The, 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 The person who stays faithful in their relationships The shame that the world puts on that is despised. It's something we we reject. It's something we say, well, you can put that shame on me, but I'm not going to carry it. That's the breach that has happened because of the work of Christ on the cross. What Paul says in chapter 3, when he says, uh, the righteous... I shall live by faith, this is verse 12, but the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them, the one who does the law, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. That's actually what the tree, what the cross was known, in, how it was known in Roman culture. They didn't even like to say the word crucifixion. They didn't even like to say the word crux because that was the root of crucifixion. So they called it the, the shameful tree, the tree of embarrassment. It's, it's kind of like what we call the bathroom, right? We call it the toilet. You know, that's actually um, a towel that was used to dry your hands, and the British didn't like using the word bathroom or commode or loo, and so they called it the toilet. They referred to the towel in the bathroom because they didn't want to refer to what happens in there. Right? And what do we call it? We call it the bathroom. We, we pick out the, the part that cleans us, right? <laughs> because we're embarrassed to talk about what happens in there. So we, we find other words. Well, this is what they're doing. We don't want to use the word crucifixion. We don't want to talk about what happened there. We want to, we want, we want to talk about the unlucky tree. We want to find a way of describing it. And it's that shame that Jesus bore for us so that we can receive the shame of the culture without jumping back on that performance treadmill. So what motivates us? If it's not the performance and it's not the accolades of the culture, it is the work of Christ. It is what Jesus did on that cross to atone for our sins. I love the way this is... One of my favorite passages, if you're allowed to have one in the Bible, um, it's Romans 3.21. Paul says this, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, separate from the law. Although the law and the prophets told us about it, they bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a satisfaction of His wrath by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. On that cross, God paid for our sins. On that cross, God declared himself just and the justifier of those who receive Jesus by faith. That's what motivates us. It's the work of God on our behalf. It's what God has done for us through Jesus Christ. What motivates us? It's God's renewal. Look what Paul says. For neither circumcision counts for anything, this is verse 15, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. Now, there's debate. What does Paul mean by new creation? Is he referring to you individually? The renewal that God has brought into your life through his spirit? The new life that he's given you? Or is he talking globally? Like a Colossians 1, 15 and following. It, when, when God says that, when Paul says that God was reconciling the world to himself through Jesus. And the answer is yes. I, I don't know why scholars get so, you know, we have to choose one. I, certainly it's both. I think in the context, since Paul is arguing that, that the Spirit is the one who gave you life and the Spirit is the one who is perfecting you, I, I think it's probably the new creation is the new life that we have in Jesus. The John 3, anyone who's been born again. But don't miss the idea that what you've experienced individually, God is doing globally. And so we don't run from the world. We don't uh, reject the world. We actually see the world as God's uh, renewal uh, ministry, as the place that God is renovating to bring new life. Uh, it's not political, it's spiritual. And the spiritual certainly will affect the political. But, um, but what motivates us as a church, I hope, to be involved in East Cobb uh, to give our lives away, to serve people in need, is to know that God is working renewal through us and reconciliation uh, with his Father through us. What rule does the believer follow? So we've asked three questions now. Right? What, what motivates distorters? What motivates us? What should motivate us? Not our performance, not the world's pressure, but the work of Jesus and the renewal program of God what rule does the believer follow? And this is how Paul ends it. And this actually will go pretty quick. Okay? For all who, verse 16, for all who walk by this rule. And he's, I, I love that he uses that word, right? Because <laughs> he's talked all about rules, how rules don't save you. And then he says, but if you follow this rule, he puts it on this rubric, this principle, this teaching level. Uh, what's the rule? Well, it's grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone. Um, I don't know what passage uh, in Galatians I would choose that doesn't sum this up better than chapter 5, verse 4. If you're in your Bibles, flip over. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. It's not our performance. It's that grace has come to us through the instrumentality of faith by Christ alone or in Christ alone. This, 
This is the rule we follow. This is how we think about ourselves. This is how we think about our relationship with God. I've been adopted into God's family. Why? Because I worked really hard. No! Because he intervened in my life. I see the fruit of the Spirit in my life. I see love, joy, peace, gentleness, meekness. I see this. Why? Well, because I've had my devotions every day. No! It's not your fruit. It's the fruit of the Spirit's influence in your life. This is the rule we follow. Anything that is good comes to us from our Father above. The glory of God alone. I, I, you know, what, what can we boast in? What do I have to boast in? This is what Paul asks in 1 Corinthians. It's one of your study questions. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. What do you have that you haven't received? Everything I have has come to me from the hand of God. Then why do you boast? What do you have to boast in? It's all the goodness and the grace of God. This is what Paul says. I, you know, what do I have to boast in outside of Christ? What do I have to take credit for outside of Christ? My good, my, my good financial, my, my credit score? No, even that has come to me through the grace of Jesus Christ. as a fruit of the Spirit in my life. Or as the fruit of God's training in my life. And our completion by grace alone. Those who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. Now, this has been his point throughout this book, is to say you began by the Spirit, the Spirit is the one who's going to bring it to a conclusion. Uh, the peace and the mercy of God that are upon you are his continuing work of grace in our lives to continue to extend to us the benefits of Christ as we walk in this life. And then he mentions the Israel of God, and there are two schools of thought. One is that he's referring to Israel, to the Jews that he seems to be going against here, that someday, Romans 11, there will be a mass conversion among the uh, Jewish people. Other scholars look at it and say he's talking to the Galatian Gentiles and he's reminding them that they are part of God's people. The Israel of God refers to you and to me as Gentiles. I lean towards that one because what's his main argument been? That anyone who receives Christ by faith is Abraham's descendant. And so the point is, we're going to stand before God someday as his people, not because of anything that we've done, but only because of the work, the completing work of Jesus Christ. So here's some questions. Number one, are you aware of what motivates you? Have you stopped to ask the question, why do I have to have a clean house before anyone comes over? Have you stopped to ask the question, why do I have to have a car of a certain make and model that's spotless inside and out? What motivates? And I'm not criticizing it. You might have a, I want to love the people who get in my car by not having you know, trash over there. That's a great motive. But what motivate? Have you stopped to ask the question? Have you stopped to ask the question, what motivates my life? What motivates how I relate to others? What motivates the choices I make, the purchases I make, the time that I invest and where I invest it? What motivates your image? What people think about you? Eh, let me stop there. What motivates our image as a church? 
What do we want to be known for in East Cobb? I think that's a great danger for us as a church in a culture of performance. To say, well, we've got to perform at the same level. You might not feel it, I feel it. As the guy who interacts with other pastors in town, as the guy who interacts even with other PCA pastors in town, I feel it. What motivates what we're doing? Is it the grace of God? I just want to share the grace of God. I just want this place to be a place where people walk in and they experience the grace of God no matter what they're struggling with. Some of the churches in town want to be known for being pure and holy and righteous. Separate from everyone else. That's the tradition I grew up in. What I would love for our church to be known for, and I think we're there, and I think we can continue to expand into this, is that this is a place of genuine love and healing. That people can come here, they can be loved, and they can heal. And they can learn what it means to live in the unconditional, undeserved grace of God. No matter your culture, no matter your race, no matter your gender, no matter your sin. You can come here and you can experience God's love and grace. What motivates you? Can you let go of that performance? That's the one you got to go home and, and think about. That's the one you got to talk to God about. Can you let go of that? For the Galatian church, it was Jewish law, it was circumcision. And Paul says you're severed from Christ if you lean on that. If you look to that, you've actually rejected Jesus. Can you let go of your performance? Because if you cling to it, you're not clinging to Christ. My prayer through this service and for this sermon would be that you can answer yes to that. That you can go home and in time before the Lord, you can say, Lord, Father, I know what's motivating some of my heart. I want to know more. You see my heart. You know my motivations, just like Paul knew these. The Holy Spirit knows what's going on. Father, I want to let go of that. Would you lead me to repentance? Would you lead me to faith in Christ so that I can let go of how I have to be known and thought of. I threw this in there, the power of the ring. When I, when I read this, Paul said the world was crucified to me. I thought of Sauron, right? Or Saruman. When he's defeated, there is no... Sauron's locked in this tower. There he, and Gandalf says he has no power anymore. And then when that ring is finally destroyed and evil is, is undone, power of it is gone. You might not feel that, but the power of the world, its pressure, its presumption, its influence has been severed, and you can experience freedom from it in Christ because he has provided for you. Folks, you have nothing to offer God that he will accept as payment for your debt outside of Jesus Christ. He is the only one who satisfies the Father. And he is the only one through whom you can present your good works with any hope that they'll be received 
and that only through Christ. But Christ has provided for you. And I hope you know that freedom and that grace. Father, thanks for the time together, for your mercy in our lives, for all that you've done to provide for us. Lord, help us as your people to lay aside the things that we cling to and cling to the finished work of Jesus Christ on our behalf. May the world see sinners saved by grace at East Cobb Presbyterian Church. In Jesus' name, amen.